Hello and welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London. Today with me, James Hansen. On today's episode, the UN agency accused of helping Hamas. Nine countries, including the US, have stopped funding an agency of the United Nations over allegations some of its staff were involved in the October the 7th attacks on Israel. We're talking about the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine, which runs schools, clinics and healthcare in Palestinian refugee camps all over the Middle East. Israel has long accused it of bias and even anti-Semitism, but now it's alleged some of the agency's staff were involved in Hamas's deadly attack. The agency says it's investigating and has already sacked those employees. Richard Spencer is the Times and Sunday Times correspondent in Israel. Israel has been complaining right from the beginning of this that UNRWA staff are sympathetic to Hamas. There's been previous allegations that UNRWA staff members sheltered hostages. That was originally denied. This statement came rather out of the blue on Friday. We weren't expecting it. UNRWA, Reef and Works Agency, announced that a number of its staff, later clarified as 12, were under investigation for taking part in the events of October the 7th. One of them is dead, we understand. Nine have been identified and fired, and two more are still being investigated. And the investigation into the accuracy of Israel's claims, this all comes from information for Israel, is, is still going on. Alongside the US, Australia, Canada, Finland, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands and the UK have also suspended funding for the agency. In response, the head of the UNRWA has urged them to reconsider, claiming over two million people in the Gaza Strip depend on it for survival. But Richard says the countries who've suspended funding are trying to walk something of a diplomatic tightrope. Pro-Israel nations, they're trying to seek a difficult balance. Most of them are now urging Israel to um, ease off in Gaza or go for a ceasefire like Britain, for example. A good example, uh, originally was very um, supportive of Israel, is now going to a position where it's telling um, Israel that it needs a ceasefire, it needs to end the fighting in Gaza for the sake of the civilian population. It needs to increase the humanitarian aid going into Gaza and at a political level by acting with Israel on this issue, if you like, taking this firm action on the the UN claims, they are showing that they're maintaining an even balance, I guess. It has to be said in America, particularly on the American right, the UN is a bete noire for Israel because of its statements on the way Israel treats the Palestinians, both, you know, in this war and previously. There's a lot of hostility towards the UN from the Israeli side that's shared on the American right. The Trump right particularly is very hostile to the UN in all its forms, particularly over the Palestinians. So that's quite a hot political issue in America at the moment and the US immediately announced this suspension of aid uh, and Britain followed. That's Richard Spencer, our correspondent in Israel. We move to the US now, where north of San Francisco sits a 160-acre so-called monastery home to an alleged orgasmic meditation commune, accused of resembling a cult. The founder of the commune is a woman called Nicole Daydone, the former CEO of a sexual wellness company called One Taste. She's facing charges of violating labour laws, and if found guilty, faces up to 20 years in prison. For the first time since being indicted, Nicole Daydone has invited a journalist to her California commune to tell her side of the story. The Sunday Times' is. Megan Agnew. It was 
incredibly odd. I went into it open-minded and found it pretty unsettling. And, And it's quite difficult to say why. I think maybe part of it was that myself and the photographer were separated when effectively when we arrived I barely saw her for two days and we were in our own huts in different bits of the woods and there wasn't a lock on the door and and I was sort of accompanied everywhere and everyone sort of had this glassy look in their eyes and they were kind of blissed out and super happy and grinning all the time Maybe they were, but I I found it really confusing actually to be there. I I left feeling much more confused than, than when I arrived. One Taste hasn't always been solely in California. Before 2018, it was a global brand with 35,000 people attending events in cities around the world. And Nicole Daydone selling her OMIN courses for thousands of dollars. OM, or orgasmic meditation, involves a woman lying back, having her clitoris drugged by a fully clothed man wearing latex gloves for 15 minutes. The One Taste founder says it isn't sex, but an everyday spiritual experience like yoga. But it is a way, she says, to repair sexual trauma. People who've experienced OM, though, say they had very different experiences. People who had been part of it said that they lost themselves when they were in it, that you have to give yourself wholly to the group, that they ended up relying on them fully for emotional support, that they knew so much about their own trauma and their own backstories that they felt manipulated by that. A lot of them spent huge amounts of money on courses and said that they left with tens of thousands of dollars of debt because to sort of qualify, I suppose, people bought more and more of these courses and to get closer to Nicole. And some of them said that they were deeply traumatized by oming and in some instances having sex with people that they didn't want to. The company denies all the allegations and Nicole Daydone told Megan she's not running a cult. She said that nobody was ever forced to do anything. She said that there were these ohm houses, they were called, which is the, these communities of people, of practitioners set up around the world. And she said that the company didn't have responsibility for what happened in them and that she knew what she knew but didn't know what she didn't know i.e. things might have been happening among practitioners, but was she necessarily responsible for that? A trial date has yet to be set, and One Taste has submitted a motion to dismiss the indictment, stating they remain in the dark as to how the FBI alleges they might have violated the law. The UK is frequently questioned about the brutality of its colonial past, during which it conquered and looted countries across the globe. But a new loan deal between two museums in London and one in Kumasi in Ghana marks a step towards reconciliation. The Victoria and Albert Museum and the British Museum have signed a three-year loan agreement for the temporary return of over 30 historical artefacts. David Sanderson is arts correspondent for The Times and told us what's being returned. These have been selected by the museum in Kumasi, which is connected with the current Asante King. And they're items of royal regalia, fine gold work, fine silver work. There's one ceremonial 
sword which historically played a part in the, the enthronement of a new Asante king and that, that had been lifted from the palace in the late 1800s. So that's one of the, the more significant of the objects that is returning. Kumasi sits as the capital of the Asante region in southern Ghana, where colonial forces regularly raided the royal palace and sent several of its chiefs into exile. All items being returned hold cultural and spiritual significance. And David says the symbolism is profound. I do believe that they've become quite a totemic issue. You know, it's a major, major story in parts of the, in other parts of the world that these items, which are of huge cultural and spiritual and historical significance to themselves, then it's a huge deal that they're stuck in a, a British museum. So the symbolism of them returning, albeit for just a three-year period, although the museums have stressed that they're open to longer loans, and I think the symbolism of that is, is quite profound. Both the VNA and the British Museum have been frustrated by the UK government's attempt to take control over their collections. Just recently, the British Museum has been prevented from loaning parts of the Parthenon marbles to the Acropolis Museum in Greece. Now, in recent decades, the use of data in sport has really taken off. Just think of the Moneyball approach made famous by the Oakland A's. Well, it now seems data will be crucial in appointing the next manager of Liverpool FC, one of the biggest soccer clubs in the world. Earlier this week, Jurgen Klopp announced he'll stand down as the team's manager at the end of the season. Now, a football correspondent, Jonathan Norcroft, has written for the Sunday Times about the way the club plans to recruit his replacement, with the help of Harvard graduate Will Spearman. After all, data analytics were crucial in appointing Klopp himself back in 2015, when the metrics showed the German had outperformed his resources in all but two of his 14 previous seasons as a manager. You can read Jonathan's piece at thetimes.co.uk or on the app with your digital subscription. Thanks for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of the Times of London. See you tomorrow.